So we are in the Gospel of Mark, and we are in his last 24 hours of Jesus' life. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Mark chapter 14. And like any good story, we're coming to the climax of the narrative, and the tension, it's ratcheting up, and the pacing increases, but time is slowing down. There's definitely a tension that has been building And part of the tension that's been building throughout the chapters is Jesus has prophesied, he's predicted that his death is coming. He's he's predicted it to his disciples multiple times. And so now, um, because everything's getting compressed, the last four chapters have covered essentially the last week of Jesus' life. So about a third of the Gospel of Mark is dedicated to the last week of his life. And we're coming into this section where, like any, any good action movie, you have like the iconic battle preparation scene. And instead of like putting on his headband, Jesus is, you know, sitting at supper, at, at the Passover, the, the, his Seder with his disciples and talking about the portrayal of Judas. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to read from verse 26 all the way to 52. And it's going to take a little bit, but I just want to immerse you into the tension of this narrative. Okay? So I'm going to read from Mark chapter 14. 26 to 52. And when, they, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John. And began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed, If it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will. But what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, 
The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not see me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Those are like my favorite two verses. <laughs> it's so random. It's such a strange. So you have this tension building, and then you have this strange little section right at the end, this 51 and 52, which really seems like it doesn't belong. I just want to talk about them real quick so we can get it out of the way if it's distracting you. Um, we, we actually think, most commentators think, that that person was Mark, Mark who was the young man, um, he's writing about himself, and it's weird to write about yourself in the third person, but they didn't have these kind of literary conventions at that time. Um, and it's, I don't understand why he just has a linen cloth on his body, and I don't understand how he could be grabbed and, and all of a sudden you know, be naked and then run away. It does remind me of thinking about Joseph um, with Potiphar's wife and how he leaves his cloak behind, but it's really, it's really kind of a strange little event right there that is... Pretty shameful, actually. It's pretty shameful to Mark. And I'm surprised that he mentions it. Um, but this whole section here is shameful for everyone. No one really turns out well in this passage. And that's kind of the point of what we're dealing with. Um, one of the things that I want to uh, emphasize as we go through this is that Jesus is, the cross is actually an idea. It's a principle. And we all think that the cross begins when Jesus is stapled, you know, the the stakes go through his wrists and through his feet, that that's where the cross begins. But if you think about the way Jesus speaks about his arrest and his betrayal, the cross begins as Jesus suffers because the cross is about suffering. And so when we talk about this idea of what it means to pick up one's cross, we're talking about a path of suffering that Jesus experienced. And so as, you get into this, as we get into this passage, what I want you to be aware of is that this is all part of the cross. This is all part of the crucifixion. His arrest, his crucifixion, and his resurrection, they all go together. They're all part of the same package. And so what we see here in the beginning, in beginning in verse 26, he's finished um, the Last Supper. When they sing a hymn, they go out to the Mount of Olives. He's predicted um, Judas's betrayal. And then what happens is he's also going to predict that Jesus' inner circle, his 12 disciples, are also going to desert him. Okay, and he makes this, this, this statement that he'll strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. And this idea, I think we understand pretty implicitly that in any, in any kind of movement, if you take out the leader, the rest of the movement goes away. The rest of the movement just kind of disappears and, and dissipates, right? Um, and so whether you take a, a charismatic leader, if once that leader steps down or goes away, um, the organization is never quite the same. And we see that throughout Christendom. And all these different church scandals that we've, been, we've, we've witnessed and experienced, you see that happening where organizations, they kind of don't come back. It's really difficult to come back from a scandal. In this case, it's not a scandal. It's the death of a leader. And so we kind of understand this. We kind of understand that uh, when a leader goes away, that the rest of the organization is impacted. And yet this is the response that Peter has. In verse 29, it says, Even though they all fall away, I will not. 
And I think it's fascinating because Jesus says, truly I say to you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And even then, Peter doubles down. He's like, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And then all the disciples say um, say the same. And I think there's a principle here. One of the questions we ask when we do Bible study together and we study the scripture text ahead of time before the sermon is, what does this teach us? What does this passage teach us about humans? What does this teach us about ourselves? And I think one of the aspects that we learn about ourselves in this passage is that we always think we're better than we really are. Um, In my previous life, I was a project manager at IBM and Hitachi. And as a project manager, part of my job was to make sure um, the project went on schedule and on cost, right? It's not supposed to go over, over budget, and it's not supposed to go over time. And invariably, what I would do um, before a project is you do what's called a sizing. You sit down, you figure out how long is this project going to take and how long is it going to cost. And then what my, what my dad taught me, who was also a project manager at IBM, is he said, you know what, just always add 15% on top of that. Whatever estimate you come up with, add 15%. And I would do that, and I would just look at it and go, but man, I think I can do it sooner. I think it could be totally done sooner. And then in every, in every, and Grace is looking at me. She's like shaking her head because um, she knows, because she's been on projects before. And then invariably, what would happen is the project would probably, on average, go 30% over budget and 30% over time, right? Um, because we always think we're better than we are. And I, and I actually used to think, and I think I've mentioned this before, I used to think this was like a guy thing. Like guys are the ones who overestimate. We're like really arrogant and, and thinking like we can do better than um, than most people. Um, but I realized this is just a human thing. This is a human thing. Because whenever I ask someone how soon they can get it done, a man or a woman, they always give me a number and very few people are able to do it within that amount of time. Because we always tend to underestimate all the different distractions and obstacles that come in our way. And so I just ask you to meditate for a little bit on your own, um, on areas in your life where you overestimate yourself where you think, where you're given a task and you think you can do it pretty easily, and this happens all the time in my household with what Judy asked me to do. I think it's going to be super easy, and I'm never, I remember one time, okay, I'll just tell a quick story, and this is kind of a tangent. I remember one time she asked me to bring the crock pot to an event, um, and I, all I brought was the inside of the crock pot. I did not bring the, th- the, the heating element, but I did not bring the rest of the crock pot. I just brought and I was, like, I was like pretty excited that I did what she asked me to do. But she's like, you know, you completely failed because there's no way to heat this thing up. I remember that pretty clearly. Okay. So we just have this ability to completely overrate ourselves when it comes to doing even the most simplest tasks. And what we're going to see is that's going to be a theme in this passage. That the very simple things that Jesus asked his closest disciples to do, they fail at. And so there is something that we can take comfort in. And this applies to all of us. That when Jesus sees you, he absolutely knows that you're going to (laughs) fail. Okay? He tells the disciples that they're going to fail him, that they're going to desert him. He recognizes Judas' betrayal. He is not surprised by your failure. I think a lot of times it's easy to come into a situation with God and be like, you know what, man, I just, I wonder if God just looks like, looks on me and he's like super disappointed and is surprised or shocked that I failed or disobeyed or disobedient in some way. And he is absolutely not shocked or surprised because he predicts the disciples' failure, right? He does it repeatedly he, and they fail him more than once. God is not surprised. Jesus is not surprised when we fail him. 
It doesn't even necessarily, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to say it doesn't bother him, but it doesn't surprise him. He expects it. He recognizes that's an aspect of who we are. Okay. Um, and so I also want to point out more aspects of what this failure means. So as we get into, so my second point is about confronting this pattern of failure that the disciples have. Um, as you probably know, numbers are important in the scriptures. You see numbers everywhere. So for example, earlier in the book of Mark, there's a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. And then you have Jairus, the synagogue ruler, whose daughter is 12 years old. And they happen kind of together, the healing of the daughter and this woman bleeding. And 12, and then you also have um, in the feeding of the 5,000, 12 leftover um, pieces of bread, loaves of bread. 12 being a symbol of Israel. And it's safe to assume whenever you see 12, that means Israel. Now, Jesus also does another feeding of 4,000 later. And in those, there's leftover, um, seven loaves left over. And seven throughout scripture has represented completion. There are seven days of creation. And seventh meaning com- this idea of completeness, representing the entirety of heavens and earth. And so we like to think in linear terms, like 12 is greater than seven. But in the Bible, 12 is Israel, seven represents the entire world. And so now we have two sets of three in this passage. First, you have Jesus prophesying that Peter will deny him three times. And then when Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane with Peter, James, and John, what you have is him telling the disciples to stay awake three times and finding them asleep. So you have three, these three, these sets of three happening twice. So what's that mean? Like, it's not exactly clear what three represents in the scripture. And yet, here's what I would propose. When you see the number three, it's a three, we say three's company, right? Three is a pattern. Three means repetition. Three means it's not an accident. It's not an accident. And I think this also says something very important about ourselves. Because a lot of times, we tend to emphasize the one-time event, okay? We tend to go, hey, I screwed up this one time but it's like an aberration, right? We like to say, that's, but that was the exception. When something happens three times, it's not an exception, okay? It's not an exception. It's actually kind of like a habit. It's a pattern. And last week, I think I shared about despairing over losing my temper with one of my kids. And I mentioned that I didn't despair about this particular instance. And the reason I didn't despair about losing my temper in this particular instance is because it's, it's not about the one-time event, Okay? It's not that it just happens one time. It's the fact that most of our sin patterns, they repeat, they, they're repetitive. They're, they happen again and again. And what I like to tell people, and I like to, for you to think about too, is I don't struggle with new sins. I don't struggle with new sins. I, have the same, I struggle with the same sins over and over. Those are those patterns. And if you've been around long enough on this planet, if you've lived long enough, you probably have some kind of survival instinct where you've been able to get by. But for those of you, there's probably, there's some of you who are in your 30s, right? All those survival instincts that you have lived by and have done well for you, they, you know, the wheels start to fall off, okay? The wheels start to fall off. I like to say the wheels start to fall off right in your 30s. Um, and that's when people typically, um, it, it's either a crisis or it can be, um, you know, thinking about middle age or you reach a peak in your career or you've been striving up to a certain point and you, you wonder what you have to show for it, the wheels start to fall off and you realize all those instincts that you had before, they don't serve you well anymore. The things that, that helped you get to the point where you're at, 
those patterns actually are some patterns of sin, of rebellion, of apathy. And this is what um, Jesus is confronting his disciples with, that their disobedience to him, that their rebellion is not a one-time thing. This is repeated, and it echoes the rebellion that we have in our own life. Because here's what Jesus is trying to do. He is trying to expose the flesh. In verse 38, it says this. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And what Jesus is exposing is how weak their flesh is, how weak they are in their own bodies. I was talking with a pastor a number of weeks ago um, after, during one of our Acts 29 conferences. It was, uh, we were sitting around a fire, and we're just talking about his, his church practices fasting together. And it's like a college church. It's near UCLA. And I was like, that's crazy. How do you get like, college students to fast? Like, that just doesn't seem like it should work. Um, but this is something that his church has really, that he has learned about personally and something he's very convinced of. And the first reason, he gave two reasons. The first reason he said that they do this is it draws us into intimacy with God. There's something about fasting that draws you into an affection and a different kind of relationship to be able to seek God and be close to him. Um, and I, that, that part didn't surprise me. I was like, okay, I get that. But the second reason he said is what really kind of hit me. He said, we fast because it exposes the weakness of our flesh. We fast because it reveals to us how easily, how much we crave and are dependent upon food. And I was like, of course, of course that's true. Of course we're dependent on it. But he's like, this, this is actually really important for us to confront because the way our culture is designed is you don't have to crave anything. You have instant gratification for everything, for every aspect of our life. If you get just even a little bit bored, you can pick up your phone, right? And you can have instant gratification with your device. In fact, one of the, uh, one of the experiments that an econ a behavioral economist did is he asked the question, again, to a bunch of college students, how much money could I pay you not to have a phone for the rest of your life? How much money could I pay you not to have a phone for the rest of your life? There was an average number. Anyone want to guess? <clears throat> Six million. That's right, right there. Yeah. Yeah. Two, two million, ten million. I love it. So it's right there. Yeah. That was the average. That was the average of those two. It was $6 million to be paid not to have a phone for the rest of your life. Now, my number, because I'm Gen X, is probably going to be a little bit lower. Mine's probably 500K. I probably do it at 500,000. Um, it's going to be a little lower. Um, I'd do it for a million. Okay, maybe a million. Um, but it's going to be a little lower. But you have a number. You have a number for that. And the reason why that number is probably more than $500,000, and if, again, if you're in college, it's probably going to be like in the millions, is because that's kind of your life, right? This is kind of your life. Like this, this is your lifeline to be able to have instant gratification. And so when you fast, you're, and again, fasting is really about denial, right? Because you can definitely fast from social media. You can definitely fast from your phone. But the idea is it exposes the weakness of the flesh. It exposes the frailty of who we are and how dependent we are on all these different you know, devices or media or whatever and all the noise that bombards us, how, how much we are connected to it and need it. And the only way God can get through is he's like, hey, you know what? I just need to have you take a break from that or recognize that you, you have the same struggle, that your flesh, your body is weak. And so what I would um, ask us today is, is that, you know, you don't have to be in your 30s to confront failure, right? That doesn't, that doesn't have to be um, a requirement. But God absolutely has designed this world to expose the weakness of our flesh, Okay. 
The older you get, the more you're going to find that's true. And the path of the gospel, the path of death, the path of the cross absolutely means exposing all the weakness of the flesh. And so what I'd invite you today is don't, you don't have to be afraid of it. And even if you are, and that's okay, we're going to talk about fear in just a few minutes. Even if you are afraid of it, that doesn't mean you have to stop. You can, you can, it's something that you can confront. Now we're going to talk about Jesus. I've kind of gone backwards. I've talked about what does this teach us about us. Now I'm going to talk about Jesus. One thing I've noticed about the Bible is that it employs very understated language, um, especially when it comes to emotions. And so oftentimes it'll say someone got angry or even like Jesus was, or someone was, Paul was annoyed or or frustrated. Um, But, you know, in many Eastern cultures, emotions don't play a prominent role, especially in the language. You don't have a lot of emotion words. Um, And yet when emotion words show up and then you add superlatives to them, and superlative just means like it emphasizes how great it is, you really need to pay attention because that's what's happening here. And so as we look back through this passage, so let's take, um, let's take verse 33, right? As Jesus enters into the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus tells his disciples to sit here while I pray. And I love that he says, sit here while I pray. He doesn't even ask them to pray. He's like, I don't even trust you guys enough to pray. I'm going to go pray. You guys just sit here, okay? So, and then he takes with them Peter and James and John. And so he's got three out of the 12, And it says, he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. Greatly distressed and troubled. And there's different ways to translate this. Distressed, troubled can also mean um, extremely scared and terrified. Okay, it can be translated to extremely scared and terrified. Um, And I'm going to talk about fear in a second. But let let me also talk about some other emotions. Let me talk about what Jesus says in this moment. In 34, he says to them, Peter, James, and John, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. So the emotion word that Jesus is explicit about because he says it is that he, is, he has experiences great sadness. There is incredible sadness at this moment. And so the question is like, what is he, what is he sad about? Right? What is he sad about? And I think you can come up with a lot of different theological reasons for why he's sad, because he's going to bear the sin of humanity, um, because he knows, he knows about the crucifixion. Um, but I'd like to propose one more option based on what Mark is telling us. Okay, Because Mark is giving us some information here. And what Mark is telling us is all throughout this narrative, what is most, what is most prominent is that the people that are closest to Jesus are going to betray him, desert him, or deny him. And oftentimes what we tend to emphasize, and if you watch like the Passion of the Christ, what's emphasized is the physical suffering that Jesus endures. Okay, the physical suffering that Jesus endures. And yet the emphasis, if you look at the Gospels, and especially in the Gospel of Mark, is it's not about the physical suffering, it's about the social suffering. Okay, it's how alone Jesus is as this pivotal moment in his life. And if you think about the times that are most painful in your own life, the the saddest times, I bet you there is a great degree of loneliness that happened at those moments. And so Jesus actually really understands what it means for, for us to be alone because he experiences being completely alone at this time because the people that he trusted the most, and I, I don't think we can emphasize this enough, the people that he recognized 
that had spent three years with him, okay, that had been with him 24-7, that had seen his miracles firsthand, those are the ones who are going to desert him. And so let me, before I talk about what this means about Jesus, let me say something about us. Okay, let me say something about um, what this means for us. Number one, you cannot outfail the disciples. <laughs> okay, you cannot outfail the disciples. A lot of times, it's easy for us to throw ourselves a pity party and be completely upset or frustrated or feel ashamed about how much we've let Jesus down. I don't think you can actually outdo the disciples in terms of failure. Okay, you cannot. There, there was a bar in terms of obedience, and the disciples don't just like the disciples just like completely crash into the bar, right? They completely underperform, right? And so what that means is, if you think there is a bar in terms of being a Christian, you are deceived. That's probably the worst thing that you can do as a Christian is think that there's a bar in terms of performance. Because the disciples fail every possible metric in this moment. And it's not, the, it's not just that they fail once. The emphasis behind failing three times is that they have a pattern of failure. And so I would say the prerequisite to being a Christian is recognizing how much you have failed. Right? That's the prerequisite. And, le- and recognizing that you are like the disciples. And so what Jesus is facing in this moment is he feels this great sadness. But there's also something else that he's experiencing. Um, there's, also, there's also another emotion that I want to I propose that is intensely, that, that's happening to him intensely. Because it says um, that he goes a little farther and then he falls on the ground. And I don't know if you realize it, but um, for a 32-year-old man, or 33, to fall on the ground, it's actually kind of a difficult thing, okay? Something has to go really wrong, Okay. For someone to fall on the ground. Yesterday, we were doing a workout, um, Saturday morning, and I noticed a man um, at the goalpost who collapsed and fell on the ground. Okay. And, uh, and a number of us went over and, and went to see if he's okay, and we called an ambulance, and, and he turned out to be, he turned out, I don't know if he had a heart attack, but something happened with him, but something has to go really wrong for someone to fall on the ground. And I don't know what instances in your life where you've fallen onto the ground out of deep emotion. I can count them on my hand because it has happened. And I will say almost every time there is, a, there, is a, there is a fear. There is a massive amount of fear where you feel paralyzed and you're scared. Actually, the most recent time that I remember was a pastoral counseling situation where I didn't know what to do and I just, I just fell on the ground. I was like, Lord, I just need help right now. I need help. And so what I want you to recognize is if someone's falling on the ground, if Jesus is falling on the ground, the intensity of sadness and fear that he's experiencing. And here, here's the thing. I was talking to someone this morning about this idea of apathy, okay? What's like apathy, like not feeling anything. And I actually wonder if apathy doesn't exist, okay? If ap- apathy doesn't exist. And let me, t- let me explain to you why I say that. I think about the times where I procrastinate, which is probably most of my life. I'm, I'm a total expert procrastinator. If I think about the reasons why I procrastinate, what it comes down to is dread. Okay, it's dread of wanting to do the task. And Jesus, at this moment, does not want to do this task. There's a part of him that does not want to do this. He says, if it were possible, may this cup pass from me. Okay, he asked God repeatedly, uh, yet not what I will. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And so what I think is going on is when we're experiencing apathy, it's a combination of both fear and sadness. 
Okay? When you are experiencing apathy, there is both fear and sadness going on. And so I don't know that to be a fact, but I wonder if that's, if, if when we experience that, Jesus understands, because Jesus also understands what it means to be conflicted. When Jesus says the spirit is willing and the flesh is weak, he's not just talking about the disciples, he's also talking about himself. That Jesus' spirit is willing, but his flesh is weak. And he's experiencing this tremendous internal conflict, right, between what he knows is right and the survival instinct of his body, which wants to stay alive and be comfortable. And all of us have that. And yet the difference in Jesus is that he is able to, he's able to confront the sadness and the fear and do what is right and good and what God has called him to do. In the book of Hebrews, the author talks about a great high priest who understands all the temptations that a human can face. And we have a great high priest who understands all the sadness and all the fear that you can experience. And the question becomes, well, you know, has Jesus understood the full magnitude of, let's say, let's say a miscarriage or let's say, um, you know, losing a, a close, a loved one. Has Jesus experienced that exact same situation? Perhaps not, you know, absolutely. Well, uh, miscarriage, no, but you know what I mean? No, he hasn't. And yet he has experienced a full range of emotion in terms of fear and sadness and losing the people that are, losing the uh, support of those that are closest to him and he relied upon, he has lost that. And he has lost it in a way that none of us can relate to. And yet all of us can relate to fear and sadness. And so our sharing prompt today is if Jesus was sad and afraid, then it means, okay, and you fill in the rest. If Jesus was sad and afraid, then it means. You fill in the rest of that. And someone was asking during our pre-service meeting, well, what if I don't believe Jesus was sad and afraid? That's fine. It's just a prompt. You can just, you can share as you feel led. But I want us to meditate on what is, what is Jesus, um, his emotional state, what does it mean for us in terms of our own lives? And so I, I pray and hope that this brings such comfort to you because our solace is ultimately in the God who became human and was sad and afraid at a pivotal moment and experienced this internal conflict and yet was able to overcome. And our confidence and assurance is in him. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your love for us, that you know us completely, that you are not surprised by our failure and the weakness of our flesh. And so, Lord, even though our flesh is weak, your spirit is willing and strong, and your spirit lives inside of us. And so, Lord, would we take comfort and solace and encouragement in you? that you have overcome and that you understand and are with us in our fear and our sadness. We pray this in your name. Amen.